Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of February 20th, 2018. On this week's show, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of Olympic stuff, the United States' lousy medal count, the return of the shirtless Tongan, American hero Michaela Schifrin, and the rise of the quad jump in figure skating. Will we get to all of that? I would listen to the show, if I were you, to find out. For the final segment of the show, I will also be joined by Kyle Newbeck of Philly Voice, who will discuss the enigma of Markel Fultz, the Philadelphia 76ers rookie who went number one in the NBA draft and has since disappeared from view. The Shibutani to my Shibutani, Stefan Fatsis, is out this week, but I'm thrilled to be joined again by the Guillaume Cizerone to my Gabriella Papadakis, Justin Peters. He's blogging the Olympics for Slate. Hello, Justin. Hey, Josh. How's it going? It's going very well. And with us from Pyeongchang, South Korea, is the Wall Street Journal's Ben Cohen, a man who combines the fierceness of Tessa Virtue and the lustrous brown hair of Scott Moyer. Hello, Ben. Hello. I'm glad I'm both because I was going to ask which one I was and I was going to prefer to be both. So I'm glad that's how I'm introduced. Here's my first question for you as we begin the show. What is it like to watch ice dancing in person? I know you were there uh, yesterday or today, whatever, whatever the hell day it is. Yeah, I don't know what day it is either. <laughs> it's not the same as figure skating because uh, and especially not the same as men's figure skating because you kind of get used to watching the guys do all of these incredible jumps and the entire rhythm of those programs seems to revolve around waiting for those quads and seeing if they'll land them or not. So when an entire program is sort of bound by gravity to the ice, it's it's kind of strange and you kind of get into the music and you're watching their expressions more. I don't know. It's It's not the same. I think I do prefer figure skating more, but I will admit, I, I kind of got into the Shibutani's Coldplay thing a little bit today. Well, I actually wanted to play a clip, not from the Coldplay part of the evening, although Coldplay, always always nice for a night of uh, ice dancing. But this is from the Virtue and Moyer gold medal winning routine. Let's uh, take a listen to that. Walk the streets for money. 
Justin, I don't want to call you out at the very top of the show, but when... No, call away. That's fine. <laughs> when, uh, when that came on uh, TV last night, you wrote to me and asked, did they hire a hobo to sing Roxanne for them? In my defense, it was very late, and I was half paying attention to Ice Dancing while I was writing another piece, and this uh, music comes through my computer speakers, you know, in which it sounds like Tom Waits's gravelier, drunker uncle is uh, covering a police song for some reason. Uh, and when you told me that it was just from the soundtrack of Moulin Rouge, I it made a little bit more sense, but not that much more, because it still wasn't clear why that was a great track to skate to. And I still feel there's a 15% chance they may have actually hired a hobo to cover that song for their soundtrack. And I, you know, more power to them. There should be more <laughs> hobo representation in the uh, ice dancing music selections. Uh, ben, do you have any insight that you can offer on the Moulin Rougeification of ice dancing? Well, there's so much Moulin Rouge in uh, in figure skating in general this year that, you know, forget about the Olympics. You could fill an entire U.S. team with skaters who have skated to Moulin Rouge programs this year. So it's sort of taken over the sport. And there are a whole bunch of theories um, uh, among people in the sport as to why some of it is nostalgia. People, you know, grew up listening to this music and now they want to be able to perform to it. I love the fact that there are, there are different theories. I mean, please go on, but just the idea that people are sitting around debating this and ice dancing salons is like, actually, I believe in theory number eight about why, <laughs> why Moulin Rouge has taken over the sport. Yeah, and, and the funny thing is that a lot of the really young skaters who are skating to the movie um, you know, had to see the movie before they actually could skate to the music from the movie because the movie is actually older than them. The movie is 17 years old at this point, and there are like literally 17-year-old skaters at the Olympics. So my colleague Louise Radnowski and I asked one of the American skaters what he thought of the movie when he finally saw it, and his review was, to be able to make such a deeply emotional story out of a very shallow premise was amazing. Wow. It was quite the review. I will say I, I would subscribe to like a movie blog if you decided to start one. Let us talk about the notion that the United States is having a lousy Olympics. Barry's for Luga of the Washington Post wrote that. Rachel Bachman, your Wall Street Journal colleague, Ben, did a piece on it. The U.S. as of Tuesday morning, Eastern time has 12 medals that's sixth in the table behind Norway with 29, Germany with 23, Canada 19, Netherlands 14, and France has 13. Neil Payne of 538 crunched the numbers as they want to do there um, back a few days ago when the U.S. had nine medals. And based on um, historical trends about how often um, the United States wins in particular sports, they would have expected to have 18. And the U.S. had 28, 37, 25, and 34 medals for the last four Olympics. Justin, I'm going to start with you. You're not you're not necessarily known for being a guy who loves the numbers. I want to talk to you about the emotions. Does it feel to you like the U.S. is having a lousy Olympics? There have been certain events where you expected the U.S. to do better that they haven't. And I think uh, it's part of the feeling that the U.S. is doing a bad job is a reaction to that. No one expected Michaela Schifrin to come in fourth in the slalom. It's her best event. No one expected Nathan Chen to have two crummy uh, short programs. You know, he is the quad king. 
in part, it feels to me like the sensation of the U.S.'s relative failure at these Olympics is a function of the most prominent athletes' surprising failure to medal in their favorite events. But, you know, we've also won some medals and there's a lot of time to go. So I'm withholding my sorrow or fury until <laughs> the final count is in. <laughs> what do you think, Ben? I think part of it is actually just the events that have happened so far. Justin, you mentioned Michaela Schifrin finishing fourth in the slalom being a huge surprise. Here's a thought experiment. What happens if she finishes fourth in the giant slalom first and then wins gold in her second event? I think it, it sort of changes the way we think about Michaela's Olympics so far, just because the, the expectations for her were so high coming into the Olympics, and then she wins gold in her first event, and it seems like it's going to set off this mania where she could win three, maybe even four individual golds, especially with her best event, the one that she has dominated. You know, she, she is the best technical skier on the planet, and she has dominated the slalom race like basically no one else in history uh, over the last four years. The last time she finished fourth in a slalom race on the World Cup circuit that she finished was in 2014. So for her to finish fourth in that race was just kind of nuts. But, you know, she wasn't really supposed to medal in the giant slalom. That was like a really impressive result for her. And for her to win gold was great. So I think we got our hopes raised for about 24 hours and then dashed in the exact minute that Nathan Chen fell to the ice uh, on Friday night. So I think part of it is sort of the way we're seeing it. You know, we see American stars crashing at the exact same time in prime time. And they haven't really recovered from that since then. That's all well and good, sir. But as I explained, Neil Payne of 538 crunched the numbers. <laughs> he found that given historical trends, the U.S. had nine medals and they were expected to get 18, just based on the events that had happened thus far. So I think if you look at the cold, hard, agate type of the medal table, then I think your like touchy-feely idea that we should be happy that uh, Michaela Schifrin won gold in the giant slalom is not supported, good sir. To be clear, it's been a pretty disastrous Olympics for the United States. I mean, in our that's uh, what I the, wanted to oh, hear. Thank you. Yeah, no, it has been. <laughs> and in the in the journal's you know pre-Olympic medal projections, I mean, we go through every sport and we assign uh, a certain percentage um, to where we think the medals are going to go in that sport. And um, when we crunched the numbers, we had Norway and the U.S. tied for 36 medals at the top of the table. Norway has 29 and the United States has 12. So Yeesh. one country is outperforming expectations and it is not the United States. The tone of some of these stories around the U.S. having a lousy Olympics is very like kind of catastrophe syndrome and like how horrible for American fans. You had a little bit of this in your piece, Ben, where you talked about Nathan Chan and Michaela Schifrin both you know, not performing well at the same time and how that was a bad moment for American Olympics fans. I would push back on that a little bit because I feel like this is the rare sporting event where it's kind of all upside, at least for me as a viewer. Like I get interested and I get happy if an American does well, especially if that American isn't Sean White. But I just don't feel sad if <laughs> if Amer the Americans don't perform well. Like, I don't know who these people are. I don't have that much time invested 
in them. And so I just feel like the notion that American Olympics fans are sitting at home waving flags and the flags are like drooping if the athletes don't well, that just doesn't really comport with my experience. I was going to say the person who you just met 15 minutes ago who falls on the ice is not depressing you the way, you know, a lifelong fandom would. That's shocking. But the thing about that, and especially about that night when uh, Nathan Chen and Michaela Schifrin both went down is that I think it's set up the way we could have rooted for those people for at least another night and, you know, possibly even into the second week for Michaela Schifrin. And by we, I mean, like Americans and not, you know, you or I specifically, but, you know, Nathan Chen fell in his short program. And if he goes into the long program the next night competing with Yuzuru Hanyu, like the the great Japanese figure skater, that's another night of tension uh, on television. If Michaela Schifrin wins gold in the slalom, suddenly she is chasing a historic metal hall and all of those hopes coming down in the, in the same night, I don't think was like a disastrous night for the United States. Um, I think it was more just like, it could have been a very cool thing to watch these two young phenoms, um, you know, chase even greater goals going forward in the Olympics. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fair. And it's obviously bad for NBC that they can't hype the next few nights of coverage around, are they going to set records or are they going to, you know, continue their amazing performances? I think it's true. It was probably worse for NBC than it was for the United States in general. (laughs) But one could also imagine a coverage strategy in which NBC realizes that most people at home are coming into these games knowing very little about the athletes and watching less because they have distinct rooting interests in any individual athletes than because, oh, cool, here's another chance to watch these sports that we only watch once every four years and instead sort of tune their coverage into emphasizing the event itself and what a great experience it is and how much fun and how exciting this is even if the American uh, falls in his short program or even if the American might not take the gold. And Josh, I know we wrote about this with the halfpipe competition. It was such a great event and Sean White took gold, but Ayumu Hirano from uh, Japan made it in really tight match all the way up to the end and almost won gold. And from watching NBC, you sort of got the impression that it would only have been a successful event for the network if Sean White took gold. Watching at home, it felt to me like they were completely unprepared for the possibility that someone other than him would have taken gold. And that is just a matter of uh, pre-event preparation. Ben, I wanted to ask you about your stories on the Norwegians and how chill they are, and also about the U.S. Olympic Nordic combined team practicing in a refrigerated parking garage. Also chilled, but in a very different way. Is that why the American Olympic team is straggling in the medal table? Because all of their teams are practicing in various parking garages? Yeah, and they're not chill enough. The reason Norway is sort of dominating this medal count, um, you know, there, there are a whole bunch of reasons. And that's sort of what we're planning a lot of coverage on for the last five days for Americans to learn how we can all be a little bit more Norwegian and dominate the Winter Olympics. But they have sort of taken the anti-American approach of not pressuring their athletes, not expecting certain results out of them, and just 
saying we want you to be there to have fun and then worry about the medals second. And in fact, when some people um, in Norway tried to ratchet up the pressure on these winter Olympians and winter sports there, I mean, cross country, biathlon, ski jumping, I mean, these are like basketball, baseball and football in the United States. When certain, you know, television personalities try to ratchet up the heat, basically Norwegians just said, no, we're not really interested in that. We, you know, are going to keep smiling. We're going to keep giving interviews and we'll see what happens. And what has happened is they're on pace to, I believe, win more medals than they ever have in the history of the Olympics, for them anyway. And it's sort of been a remarkable gold rush for them. And it's kind of interesting just to hear people talk about sports the way that they do in such a relaxed and chill, I think is the word we used, way. You don't really hear that in the United States, and especially, you know, around the United States Olympic teams. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see going forward if any of these teams sort of take a lesson from Norway. I guess another way to talk about this or think about it is that for a lot of Americans who are participating in sports that aren't popular here, that don't get a lot of funding, you know, like in cross country, for example, there was, um, I believe the women's team finished fifth in the relay and the women on that team were really happy. (laughs) You know, that doesn't make it into the medal table. It doesn't get a lot of publicity here in the US, but that's like a major accomplishment. And it also just seems a little ridiculous for us to be disappointed when we don't give a shit about any of these sports, except for maybe like five minutes a year. So we need to recalibrate our expectations and be happy with fifth place. That's what I said. It's so funny to get some of these press releases from the United States Olympic Committee and and specific teams that are like, celebrating an individual ski jumper finishing in 17th place, like an American record. And you're like, 17th place? Like, I, you know, even, even silver and bronze, watching those people be so happy to get second and third place um, is so anathema to our sports culture. I mean, get second or third place in like the NBA and it's like a terrible season. And here you have like the Shibutani's winning bronze and it's the greatest day of their lives. And like, it's probably the best result they could have had. And they recognize that it's just, it's, it's a very funny place to go from, um, the way we watch sports. Like you, you go from the Super Bowl to the Olympics. And if you're a ski jumper and you finish in 17th place, that's like the best you could have done. And you're actually happy with your result. In a moment, we're going to talk about the shirtless Tongan flag bearer and the trickless Hungarian freestyle skier and other more exciting Olympic stuff with Ben and Justin. But before we get to that, I wanted to give a little preview of our Slate Plus segment today and that we're going to talk to Ben about what it's been like to cover the games in South Korea, what his experience has been like having nothing to watch in the middle of the afternoon. And then we'll contrast that with our experience watching the games here at home in the United States. If you want to hear that, join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. And if you do, you can get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. 
Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Over the weekend, the world discovered Elizabeth Marion Sweeney. She is a half-pipe skier, one of those uh, freestyle skiers uh, that does a lot of uh, tricks coming out of the pipe. It's really dangerous. They do a lot of uh, twists and spins and turns. Um, she participated in the qualifying runs for the half-pipe event, and here is how uh, the announcers called it. Liz Swainage just getting up to the top of the wall, going for these grabs, the safety grab you'll see there, and then opting for another just cruising up to the top of the wall, showing the judges she can make it down this half-pipe clean. So, Justin, we uh, saw (laughs) this clip around the same time, I think, that the rest of the world did. And we were just, like, didn't really understand what was going on or didn't know what to make of it. I mean, you couldn't really tell from hearing the announcers, but she wasn't trying to do any tricks. She wasn't, like, really emerging from the halfpipe at all. She was just kind of having a leisurely meander up and down. It was so odd and disingenuous the way that the uh, commentators called her run as if she were no different from any of the skiers who preceded her. And if you watched any of the event, you would have noticed that the skiers who preceded her were different from Swaney insofar as they were actual freestyle halfpipe skiers who tried to do tricks at the top of the pipe, whereas this woman is just resolutely focused on making it to the top of the pipe, turning around and staying upright throughout. And you got these commentators, you know, just describing what she's doing as if they're actual point earning tricks, as opposed to the product of someone who has found a loophole in the system to game her way into the Olympics. And it was bizarre. The entire thing is just bizarre. It's funny, but bizarre. So her scam to get into the Olympics. Let's describe it. So she picked a sport where there aren't that many women that participate. She had previously tried to qualify for the Olympics in skeleton representing Venezuela. She's American. This time she tried to get into the Olympics as a half pipe skier representing Hungary, where supposedly her grandparents come from. So the way that she accrued the like points to get high enough in the World Cup standings to qualify automatically was she basically just spent a crap ton of money to go to every World Cup event, which is a thing that's prohibitively expensive, I think, for most athletes to do. She went to all these and she like her strategy was to do exactly what she did in the Olympics, which was to just go up and down the pipe without falling down. And then occasionally there would be skiers who tried and they would fall and she would finish above them in the standings. And so she did that. She qualifies for the Olympics. And the thing that really confused me, and it confused Justin too, Ben, is like, okay, round of applause. You figured out how to scam your way into the Olympics by like pulling this like go to every event and not fall down scheme. But she like didn't manage to learn a single trick along the way. And it's not like if she does the same thing at the Olympics, like she's going to earn points to like make it to some like super universe Olympics by not falling down. It's like, why not actually try to do something on the biggest stage? Like that was the part to me that was kind of like, what is, what is wrong with you rather than like, you know, you got to give you a pat on the back for, for figuring this out. Have you ever tried riding up and down a half pipe? You know what, Ben, (laughs) I don't appreciate that question. I feel like if this was like my whole mission in life 
is to do this. And she's clearly been trying to do this for like years and years and years. I just don't understand what you get out of it if your goal is to get to the Olympics and you're just going to like pull shit like that. You're putting years into this. A lot of money. You got to fly all around the world to these World Cup events. Like learn a trick. Let's let's just yell at Ben more. I've realized that it's hard. Like obviously it's hard. It's the fucking Olympics. <laughs> and like if the people in the Olympics like really – I mean this is an event and we're going to get to PETA, the shirtless Tongan cross-country skier. Like he – didn't really know how to cross-country ski like all that well compared to the other folks in the Olympics. But like you can't really tell as a casual viewer. He's just going a lot slower. Like he's moving along. He's like moving his arms and legs in the same fashion as whoever it is from Norway that's winning this race. But like this is a discipline and an event where if you don't know what you're doing, it's like painfully obvious to everyone. And so I just don't understand what's going on in her head that she did this. Well, the other question is what she got out of it, right? I haven't seen anything where she has explained it all that well yet. Well, Ben, she said after the event that she was disappointed that she didn't make it to the final. Very disappointed. (laughs) She's, I think, not delusional enough for that to be true. I think she's just being disingenuous, which is another reason why I find her annoying. Well, she did run for governor of California when she was all of 19 years old, right? She did. She didn't, she didn't make it on the ballot, but she did try. Um, and side note, if you ever want to spend an interesting 20 minutes, go back and try to find the list of everyone who tried <laughs> to get on that ballot but didn't. Travis Kalanick from Uber tried to get on. Dale Hewley, wow. the comedian, tried to get on. Uh, Jerry Brown tried to get on and failed. Very interesting stuff. I agree. I think you might have been being sarcastic that that was interesting, but I agree. All right, Ben, I think the question here is what is acceptable Olympics tourism and what is unacceptable Olympics tourism. And you've, that this is like your wheelhouse. This is the, this is the question that I expect you to answer definitively for me and for the podcast listeners. If you are an Olympian in a summer sport and over the course of the next year, teach yourself a winter sport, despite never having access to that winter sport, never having access to uh, the surface where that winter sport takes place and get at least decent enough to qualify even through uh, the widest loopholes in the sport. I think that's acceptable Olympics tourism. And so that takes us to PETA, the shirtless Tongan flag bearer, whose story from Rio to Pyeongchang we've sort of chronicled somewhere between obsessively and excessively, somewhere right in uh, the sweet spot there. And, you know, we, we went out to see him in South Korea as he actually competed last week. And There are easier ways to get to the Olympics than to teach yourself how to cross-country ski in the course of a year. I mean, as you guys were talking about, like, you have to at least do it. And, like, cross-country skiing is really hard. I was sort of out of breath just watching him. And that was not only... He finished the race. He finished the race. And he finished not in last place. I mean, the guy who finished in last place was his training buddy, Herman, who is a 43-year-old father who runs a specialty running store in McAllen, Texas, and was running the New York City Marathon in like three hours and 19 minutes three or four years ago. So that's who finished behind him. But he still had to do it. And he still had to train for a year and get himself in shape to finish a race without dying on his skis. And, and dude uh, is legit from Tonga. Like this guy is is actually from Tonga. He's not, he's not an American who's claiming Tongan grandparentage after trying to claim Venezuelan grandparentage first. And, and you know, the nice thing about him is that 
he might be the most earnest person at the Olympics, and yet he also understands the absurdity of this quest. He's kind of irresistible, and you know, it's it's sort of it's just been like such a treat to be able to to write about you know this guy who had never been on snow before, trying to teach himself to cross country ski because he loves the Olympics so much. And that's like you know the Olympics. The, there's there's so much nasty stuff about the Olympics these days, and so much of it is deserved. But you also see those moments here where like you know, her mom, the Mexican who runs a running store in Texas, like grabbing the Mexican flag as like his buddies from countries around the world are waiting for him at the finish line when you kind of reminded that it is a pretty cool event when it all goes right. Justin, I would say the very simple metric to decide whether somebody belongs in the Olympics as an Olympics tourist is when other Olympians see you, do they want to take their picture with you? Yeah. Or do they roll their eyes and say, what are you doing here? And the funniest thing about the trickless Hungarian skier is that everyone knows her on the uh, World Cup circuit, but not in a good way. And I feel like this is one of the few stories I've read where Olympians have asked to be quoted off the record in (laughs) (laughs) describing their true feelings about Elizabeth Swaney. And everyone wants to go on the record talking about the shirtless tongue. And he seems like a great guy who understands, as Ben said, like the absurdity of his quest. I mean, his quote about what his goal was, you know, well, you know, finish the race, don't ski into a tree. You know, compare that against Elizabeth Swaney's apparently earnest confusion that she didn't make the finals. It's uh, Taylor Two Cities. Um, I know what city I want to live in. We should give the shirtless Tongan the benefit of having his entire name read on this podcast. That'll be the real uh, cherry on top of his Olympics experience. It's Pita Tafa Tafua. And I like how we've we've sort of mimicked the style of shirtless Tongan flag bearer with trickless Hungarian skier. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that is that is to our credit. The best moment of the Olympics thus far for me was Esther Ledechka, the snowboarder, who, after NBC declared the race being over, this was the women's super G. The top twenty women had already come down the hill. Then they start, you know, the parade of kind of lower ranked skiers and then she comes down 26th and to like the great shock of everyone in attendance she you know beats the time of anna veith who was in first place well these are the olympics and anything can happen and it just happened while everyone on this hill Everyone here in the media, including us, was anointing Anna Veit of Austria, the winner in the women's Super G. Esther Ledetska came down the hill, Bodie, just a short time ago and shocked the world. It was the, one of these moments of surprise and delight in the Olympics. Ledetska, who's from the Czech Republic, she's obviously not an Olympics tourist, but she was participating in an event that was like her second best event. She's a favorite to win the gold in snowboarding later this week. Ben, did you kind of get a sense around Pyeongchang that people were just like totally like fascinated and mystified by by this? Were people as like overwhelmed by it as they seem to be kind of around the world? I think the European press, especially that understands like what an insane thing this was. You know, I feel like for people who cover the sport day in and day out, they know that the people who go beyond like the top 20 skiers are not supposed to 
win the gold medal. Um, and in fact, you know, I was at Michaela Schifrin's race the day before, and you know, I actually never covered a ski race before, and you know, I was trying to figure out what the order of the skiers was, like why the top people seemed to be going in the top 20 and who was going beyond it. And it obviously became clear that the people who were going after those people were the people who just had no shot of winning. And so, you know, to find out the next day that this person who, again, does another sport at the Olympics, I mean, can we, that's like the craziest thing I've ever heard to, to not only be good enough to medal in one sport, but in a completely different sport in the same Olympics medal. It's, it's like, it's just completely, it's not like completely basketball. different. It's not completely different. It's not like she's also playing hockey. It's not, I mean, it's not like she's a cross-country skier turned Taekwondo <laughs> fighter, just saying. I mean, it's just a different thing underneath her feet, man. Let's not go crazy. No, you're right. You're right. It's, uh, it's, it's quite a feat. It's remarkable. Justin, what was, what was your take on kind of the, the shit that NBC got for botching this? I felt that was like not in like the top 45 things that NBC has done wrong no. during the Olympics. Because as Ben said, it's like nobody – around the like entire universe and people who are experts in this sport thought that she had any chance. Here, here's my take. I don't blame NBC for cutting away from the race. Where I do find fault is in the way that they made it seem as if the race was actually over to people watching at home, um, which it wasn't. There were still more people to go. And all they had to say was rather than say, oh, uh, Anna Veit wins gold. All you need to say is, well, it looks like she's got a firm grasp on the gold medal. There are still a few skiers to go, but it looks like she's got this one cinched up. Uh, but okay, you didn't say that. That's fine. Why didn't they cut back in a better, like, manner? Um, everything's on tape delay. Uh, you know, Deadspin wrote about that, and they made a great point. Everything is on tape delay. And I think the fact that they went back to it and had um, the NBC ski commentators call it as if they were calling an instant replay of something that had just happened is a function of um, what we were talking about before, uh, the network's focus on American athletes and American accomplishment at the expense of giving a broader look at the excitement of the games. All right, we're going to wrap up here, but I promised... Nathan Chen in my intro, and I don't want to be made a liar. Uh, ben, you wrote about him. You spent a bunch of time with him. His performance in the free skate was amazing, spectacular, like the most quad jumps ever. And if he hadn't flubbed the short program so badly, he would have won a medal. But what's your sense of him? He's 18. Like, what kind of, of guy is he? What's interesting about him? So I went to a Golden State Warriors game with him, actually. Um, two days after he won the U.S. championships. And he was um, probably the favorite at that point to win gold in the individual event. Um, Han Yu from Japan was struggling with an injury. Uno hadn't really performed all that great this season. And Nathan Chen was coming on. And the, the interesting thing to me about him, in addition to the quads, and the reason I wanted to write about him was that he's obsessed with the NBA, which you know, probably shouldn't be all that surprising since he is 18 years old. And it seems like if you are 18 years old, you're probably more likely than not obsessed with the NBA. But um, if you had asked me how old he is, I would have said he's 25. He really carries himself um, much older than he is, which only made his short programs in the team event and the individual event um, even more shocking to me. I mean, he 
he admitted afterwards, especially after he nailed the free skate, that he was jittery and he was nervous um, in on that stage. Um, which you know, it's it's one of those things that, as a non-athlete um, of any sort, I can't really understand. But just you know, you step onto that Olympic ice and you really do feel it. And he seemed to do that. And I was you know, I was talking about this with a bunch of people here whether he would have had that free skate if he had, you know, been in contention in the short program. It's impossible to know. He probably wouldn't have attempted the six quads. He wouldn't have been as loose as he was. You know, if he had done just a little bit better on the short, who knows? Justin, the really like kind of fascinating aspect of Michaela Schifrin's first week of the Olympics was that she won gold in her first event as Ben said before it was the giant slalom not the one she was expected to win and then she goes into her slalom where she's expected to win the gold the like conventional narrative around that would be the pressure's off she already has a gold medal this is her best event and nbc and i thought this was like really good of nbc actually they like had a reporter there saying like she just threw up (laughs) Like, she seems like she's, like, kind of losing her shit here. And then, she, you know, she's been really open and honest about the fact that she's nervous and that she's scared. And, like, good for her. Like, uh, you know, be, you know, embrace that and, like, tell people that it's okay to be nervous. But I thought that was really fascinating about her and the fact that she's so dominant and had already won gold that she was still, you know, so so nervous going into her big event. I mean, it's nerve-wracking competing at the Olympics, I would assume. I've, not if you're Elizabeth Swainy. Well, no, <laughs> not if you're her. No, but I mean, I was going to ask, like, Ben, like, it seemed to me that, you know, just from watching at home, that you know, Nathan Chen may have been affected in his short program by having to immediately follow uh, Han Yu, who, you know, skated such a great program. And then there were, you know, hundreds of thousands of, you know, stuffed Winnie the Pooh bears being uh, flung onto the ice. And it took several hours, I'm exaggerating, for them to be all sort of like cleaned up. And then, you know, watching the reigning gold medalist do his thing and everyone love him and like, all right, your time, get out there and uh, make everyone forget him. As a non-elite athlete, that would have certainly <laughs> gone to my head. And, you know, I can certainly understand why it may have conceivably gone to his. Following Han Yu is one thing. Following him after having to skate the ice longer than you would after anyone else because there are so many Winnie the Pooh stuffed bears on the ice that need to be cleared is like another thing. I mean, it certainly didn't help him. Um, How much it hurt him, I think, is impossible to know. But, you know, LeBron James never has to worry about, like, you know, Winnie the Pooh bears being thrown onto the court when he's attempting a free throw. So... It, it was a completely remarkable thing to see in person, just Winnie the Pooh's being rained down on the ice to celebrate <laughs> this Japanese figure skater. It was like one of those things you really only see at the Olympics, I think. Ben Cohen writes about the Olympics for the Wall Street Journal. He also writes about other things, but he's been in South Korea for the past couple of weeks writing amazing stuff. Um, you should check out his stories in the journal. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And Justin Peters is uh, writing about the Olympics for Slate. His stuff is also amazing. And I really enjoy working with Justin for these two weeks. And really, whenever we get to work together, Justin, thank you. Likewise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs) 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In the run-up to the 2017 NBA draft, University of Washington freshman Markel Fultz was the consensus number one pick. Mike Schmitz of Draft Express called him a franchise lead guard, future all-star, and a player any organization can build around. ESPN's Chad Ford compared him to James Harden, writing he's the most complete player in the draft. There really isn't anything he doesn't do well. He can shoot, handle, pass, and defend. He also has great size, length, and sneaky athleticism for his position. Now, about eight months after the Philadelphia 76ers took Fultz with that number one pick, he isn't playing, and it's not entirely clear why. Earlier in the season, Fultz was diagnosed with a shoulder injury. Now, in videos of 76ers practices, Fultz has an incredibly ugly hitch in his shot. Honestly, if you didn't know this guy was supposed to be one of the best players in the world, you'd think he maybe hadn't even ever shot a basketball before. Kyle Newbeck, who writes for phillyvoice.com, has been trying to figure out what's going on with Markel Fultz for the last six months. We'll link to his recent story on our show page. It is called, appropriately enough, What Has Really Been Going On with Markel Fultz? Kyle, welcome to the show. Hey, Josh. How are you? I'm good. I look forward to you solving this mystery for me. Um, I've been fascinated by Fultz uh, since the season started. I think a lot of people are. um, And... In my intro, I gave people a sense of the hype around him going into the draft. That was back in June. So when did it start to look like something was amiss with him? And what were the first signs that something was going on with Fultz? The first real signs came in late September when training camp started. Uh, Some of the assembled media got to watch some scrimmaging and late practice stuff at the end of a, a training camp practice. And he had the jacked up free throw look that I think many people have become familiar with since because it's become a big meme almost on Twitter. But on the first day, it was just like, oh, maybe he's just messing around. We didn't really pay any mind to it. And then he comes back day two and does the same thing. And so then we're at the point where we had to press both Markel and the team about it and they gave some conflicting answers, which was the start of uh, a lot of conflicting answers from all parties involved. So had there been any indication before late September that Fultz had ever had an issue with shooting? I mean, if you just look at the percentages, he shot over 40% from three in college and was known as a good shooter going into the draft, right? Right. And we had no indication that this was going to be a problem, even as late as mid to late July. He played in Utah and Las Vegas summer league with the Sixers then. And while there was a a noticeable alteration to his shot with him shooting it a little more in front of his face, he still was hitting the, the variety of shots, the type of shots that you saw him hit in college and doing it smoothly and really well. So we were all taken aback that this could have happened in the span of what seemed to us from the outside as something that happened within like two months. All right. So in your piece, you kind of go into your reporting a little bit, which is helpful as a reader. Like you get the sense of like 
how difficult it was to acquire information from the team. You also were able to acquire information from sources outside the team. Can you just explain to folks what the process has been like for you to try to figure out what Fultz has been doing, kind of who's in his ear, and what the developments have been with this story? With a story like this, you really just want to talk to everybody that's involved with it and everybody that's around the kid because you have to go into And he's 19, so he is a kid, He is very much a kid. You go into something like this and you know that everyone here is going to have an agenda. The team is incentivized to to pump him up. He's the number one overall pick. They, they're going to tell you they believe in him. They're going to point the finger at outside influences or people that are outside the building. And conversely, the people that have been around Markel his whole life are going to say, look, we've been around this kid since he was a, a child and he was great the whole time he was with us. Now he's with your organization that's had a a bit of a spotty track record with uh, health issues, I guess we could say, the last few years. And now he's messed up and not shooting the right way. So really, it was an exploratory process more than anything. I will say, in the interest of transparency, some of it was just getting random tips from different people. I talked to lots of Sixers fans, people in the Philadelphia area who are heavily invested in all this. And they would say, hey, He's at this gym, but it's going through that that legwork, that process of reporting. It was it was fun, but it's also depressing at the same time because this kid is obviously going through uh, some serious problems here. So the fundamental question here seems to be, does Fultz have a shoulder injury or did he perhaps have a shoulder injury in the past and then because of you know, trying to compensate for it, his shot got screwed up and he hasn't been able to to get it back? Or is he having whatever the basketball equivalent is of like, you know, Rick and Keel being unable to throw a pitch, um, you know, and, and hit the strike zone? I guess I want to like just state up front my view and I feel like this is how most people should think about it, if not everyone. It's like, if he is having a, a psychological issue, that's like no less real than if he's having a shoulder issue and it should be treated, I think, or, or thought about or talked about in a similar way. And so I'm just curious what your conclusion was or what you believe after talking to all these people. Do you think that the shoulder injury was real at one point or is real now? So I think that there's a combination of factors at play here. I think that the first problem is that he and his personal trainer, a guy named Keith Williams, who's been working with him for a long time, they tinkered with the shot mechanics too close to the season. Something obviously went wrong prior to him showing up to training camp, and that was sort of the catalyst for all this. Now, what happens from there is, I guess you could say it's up for debate. I, I wouldn't say that he was never injured or at least never dealt with any soreness. I think... The, the doctors who have seen him would not put their reputations on the line making up an injury for this kid. But at the same time, when the Sixers have were saying in late October, early November that he's out indefinitely, I had multiple people tell me he's still shooting jump shots in private. And just because he's not on public display for the cameras doesn't mean he's not still 
currently working through this issue. Like to me, the biggest tell was there was a report in late October where his agent came out and said he can't lift his arm up above his head, which that's a pretty huge claim for a, a professional athlete. Well, I talked to several people that day who said on that very day when the agent said he can't lift his arm up, he was shooting hundreds of jumpers in the Sixers practice facility. So at the very least, we're, you're being, I guess, misled or lied to about the severity of what was happening. And then on top of all this, there's even if there wasn't a mental aspect to it in the beginning, I think there's very clearly a mental block or a mental aspect to this now. And really, that's no different than a lot of guys who have an injury or have some sort of problem where they're trying to become the same person or player they were before. And now they can't get it back. So I think like Josh, if, if you forgot how to talk for this podcast, do you think there would be a mental block eventually that like, that's the equivalent of what we're talking about here. Yeah. I think that's a fair analogy. I think people might be happy some people if i forgot to talk and couldn't do this podcast but a lot of sixers fans are are sad that they can't see Fultz on the court i guess the question that i have is how do you feel like the sixers organization has handled this i mean this has been for better or worse a franchise that has had a lot of experience with number one picks you know not playing their first seasons with uh ben simmons and joel Embiid. Um, so I guess that could cut either way. But just seeing these like videos from the practice facility where it seems like they're being taken from like, you know, 100 yards away or something, and you just it's kind of crazy. zoom in <laughs> and see him like botching free throws or, or whatever. Is the team to blame for those videos getting out? Is the team to blame? I mean, obviously, the team isn't to blame for the agent seemingly lying about what his condition was, but like what, where do you fall on like how the Sixers have handled it overall? So I, I think they certainly deserve some blame. I think internally their objective has been to empower Markel whenever they get the chance. So part of the reason that he's out in front of the cameras and becoming, I, I guess, a living meme is that Markel feels like he should be out there, that he wants to just be. I'm a normal basketball player. This is what I do. And I'll live and die with the results. And so he's cool with those videos being out in the world. I don't know that I would say he's cool with the videos being out there, but he, there is a part of this process is of him returning to play is getting him readjusted to like, look, dude, you're going to be under a certain level of scrutiny for pretty much the rest of your career. I mean, when, when you start your career with something like this, there's going to be a mistrust between you and the public on some level. So I think the Sixers, because he feels this way, because he loves basketball so much, they want him to just feel as normal as possible. Now, that being said, when you see your player being scrutinized to this degree and every single shot that he takes turned into a, a, a viral video, at a certain point, I think you have to say, look, we're just going to keep him behind closed doors when he's ready. He's ready. Because if there is a big mental issue, which I, I don't want to speculate on stuff like that, I don't think any of this can be helping. I mean, look, we're, you and I are sitting here talking, having a whole podcast segment about him. There's been countless articles, countless videos posted. None of this can be good for him. 
Yeah. I mean, it seems just kind of unavoidable. Yeah. The scrutiny, although I do think the team could manage it and manage him better. I guess like what you're saying, if they're following his wishes at a certain point, it's really up to him and there's only so much the team can do. I guess my question is, and and one of the things that was most interesting in the piece was it just seems like everyone really likes each other. Like he seems to like the team, the team and his teammates seem to like him. It doesn't really seem like we're at the recrimination stage yet. I guess the question is, is that accurate? And do you see this kind of like going south or do you feel like everyone at this point is still like kind of on the same page and just feels like we're going to work through this together? From every indication I've been given, I think they will eventually work through this. And he's his teammates, his coaches, people who are around the team all talk about how hard he works, how driven he is to get back. So I don't think there's the usual concern you might have with a player who's faltering in year one where there have been plenty of guys who have busted due to a lack of drive, a lack of work ethic. They they got to a certain point just because they were naturally gifted. I don't think that's the case with Markel, that everybody tends to rave about his character. But it's just I don't know that there's a good answer here for the path forward. I think to to the previous question about having him out on display when they had him in private in November and December, they very much thought he was going to come back in early January because he looked so good in those private settings. And then once he was unleashed into this, this public format where he's under scrutiny again, that's when things started to to go wrong. And I guess you could say he even regressed during that time. So I just, I don't know what they can do more than they have been doing right now. I mean, this is an all-hands-on-deck situation. They're, the head coach, Brett Brown, is a, a lot of the giving a lot of the instruction to Markel directly, which is hard for him to do given the fact that he has to coach the team night after night after night. But That would usually go to like a skills development coach or like some assistant who is way down the bench, right? Right. They specifically have a, a shooting coach named John Townsend. The person that most people see Markel work with is Billy Lang, who is a who's an assistant coach who specifically does skills and development, but he has other responsibilities too. So they've turned to outside trainers. They've sent him to former NBA player Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, who most people know as uh, formerly as Chris Jackson at LSU. Um, they've tried everything they possibly can just to to make this kid feel loved and appreciated and nurtured and like you're a big part of our program. So I think they believe there's a path forward, but it's really hard to say. I guess it's obvious to say this, but it just seems like they don't really know what to do because nobody would know what to do in this situation because it's just not something that's really been seen or dealt with before on the NBA level, at least as far as I'm aware of. There is a little bit of a history of it in baseball, and you're being very responsible and not wanting to speculate about whether it is a psychological issue. But I just think it's clear that the Sixers don't know what they're doing, and I think it's clear that nobody else would necessarily know what they were doing, and I think it's clear that none of us sitting here know what's going to happen. And 
it just it must be like kind of scary for him just to lose this kind of fundamental ability and i just really hope for him because by all accounts he seems like a good dude he's working really hard that he's able to recapture it and i'm just curious what philly fans i mean i'm sure that given the super bowl win they're just going to be like super duper chill for the next like decade <laughs> about about everything but i'm just wondering if like what the kind of like baseline philly fan thinks and has to say about faults and what's going on with him it's sort of all over the place i i think honestly there are a lot of people who some of the diehards get mad when people like me and some several other of my colleagues even report on this stuff they think that what we're doing is damaging to markel by putting all this out there and I think I've tried to If be, nobody talks about him, then he'll get better. Right. It's like like, some magical thinking. I do get it on some level, and I have tried to be responsible in what I say and don't say because uh, we said it at the beginning of our segment here. He is a 19-year-old kid, and regardless of what the cause of all this is, he's dealing with something that's really tough, that what he loves to do has been taken away from him in a sense. And so... I do sympathize with them, but we can't craft our our jobs around something being hard to the subjects we cover. And so that's been a big part of the fan response. There, there's a lot of sympathy for him. There's been plenty of people who want to write him off as a, a bust already, which to me is, is crazy. He's only played four professional games. And if anyone judged me on the first four articles I ever wrote professionally, I probably would never work again. So I would say, even though I'm supposed to be objective reporter guy here, I think I'm rooting for him just to return to form just out of sympathy for him and the situation. Kyle Newbeck writes for Philly voice. His story is called what has really been going on with Markel Fultz. Kyle, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on, Josh. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for Afterballs. And it's just me, your pal Josh, here by myself doing an Afterball. But I'm still going to go through the typical Afterball procedure. I'm going to pick an Afterball name. And I was thinking while watching the ice dancing on Monday night, the Tessa Virtue of the gold medal winning ice dance team of Virtue and Moyer, that Tessa Virtue is just obviously a fake name. And that I thought that I would pick a couple other, you know, fake names for her to go by in future Olympics if she wants to retire Tessa Virtue. I was thinking maybe Maybelline Justice would be a good name for Tessa Virtue. Also, I like Sienna Humanity. And then my final one was uh, Vivica Polkritude. I thought Vivica Polkritude had a really good ring to it. So I'm going to go with that for my afterball name. And I'm going to pair the afterball name of Vivica Polkritude, which is ridiculous, I think I can fairly say, with an extremely serious afterball. So I'm going to give you a little uh, sweet and sour afterball cocktail here. 
The subject of this uh, Vivica Polkertude is that Golden State Warriors coach Steve Kerr, as is his want, made a very strong public statement last week after the mass shooting in Parkland, Florida. Let's listen to a little bit of that. It doesn't seem to matter uh, to our government um, that children are being shot to death uh, day after day in schools. It doesn't matter that people are being shot um, at a concert, in a movie theater. It's not enough, apparently, to move uh, our leadership, our government, the people who are running this country, uh, to actually do anything. That's demoralizing. But we can do something about it. We can vote people in who actually have the courage to protect people's lives and not just uh, bow down to the NRA because they've financed their campaign for them. So as you might be aware, Steve Kerr got his social conscience or credits getting his social conscience to his family background. His father, Malcolm Kerr, was the president of the American University of Beirut, and he took that job in 1982, despite the fact that Lebanon was in the middle of a civil war. In January 1984, the 52-year-old Malcolm Kerr was assassinated by unidentified gunmen. The New York Times wrote that he was killed not for being who he was, but because now that the Marines and the American embassy in Beirut are smothered in security, he was the most vulnerable prominent American in Lebanon and a choice target for militants trying to intimidate Americans into leaving. Steve Kerr was a freshman at the University of Arizona when his father was killed, and he was famously taunted by Arizona State students with the chants PLO, PLO, and your father's history, and why don't you join the Marines and go back to Beirut? Kerr has rarely spoken about his father, but he did say in an interview in 2015 I feel his full impact on my whole life. It's there every day. After the Trump administration's immigration ban went through in January 2017, he talked about his father again. Here's a clip of that. Someone who is his family member was a victim of terrorism, and having lost my father. Uh, if we're trying to combat terrorism by banishing people uh, from coming to this country, by uh, really going against the principles of what our country's about and creating fear. It's the wrong way to go about it. If anything, we, we could be breeding anger and terror. And, and, uh... What I didn't realize until doing a little bit more background uh, reading this weekend, though, is that the Kerr family's legacy in the Middle East goes back a generation further. As the New York Times' John Branch wrote in December 2016, Malcolm Kerr's parents, Stanley and Elsa Kerr, were American missionaries who met in the Middle East after World War I. He worked for American Near East Relief in Turkey during the slaughter of countless Armenians. And uh, Stanley Kerr, Steve Kerr's grandfather, wrote a book about that experience. It was called The Lions of Mirage. And as Jano Bogosian wrote for Uproxx, this was a piece also in 2016, Near East Relief is credited with helping preserve the Armenians in the face of the genocide that sought to destroy them. They pioneered the idea that all Americans, regardless of age, income, or background, could help others. Now, that's a family legacy that Steve Kerr is carrying on to this day. He is one of many NBA coaches, players who speak out on social issues. 
But the thing I really wanted to get back around to at the end of this afterball was that it was absolutely disgraceful that Kerr let his players coach themselves against the Phoenix Suns the other day. Have you no decency, sir? Have you no respect for the game? Shame on you, Steve Kerr, a guy who should probably, at the very least, be vice president to Greg Popovich. Steve Kerr, good dude. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort, and filling in for Patrick this week was Andrew Parsons. Our intern is Jason Rosenzweig. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out If Then, a podcast about technology, society, and power. Each week, Slate's April Glazer and Will Arimas take you on a lively tour of the tech news that actually matters, from fake news in your Facebook feed to the algorithms that want your job, to the Uber drivers who want a job with benefits. With news-making interviews of key tech industry figures, fascinating academics, and top tech journalists, they explore not only how the technology that's shaping our world works, but the ideas, ideologies, incentives, and biases that underlie it. And guess what? They do not always agree. Go to slate.com slash if then to get a new episode every Wednesday. I am Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>